Well, good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the conclusion of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 8, and chapter 45, verses 14 through 25. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nation. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and Savior, there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed, all who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, uh, Joe. Uh, this morning, we've got a, a treat and a privilege to uh, hear from uh, somebody besides your uh, usual rotation of pastors here at the King's Church. And so we have got uh, our friend John Robinson here this morning to uh, preach for us. Uh, John and his wife Jess have just moved here uh, from Pennsylvania. And they've moved uh, not here to Lakeland, but over to the uh, Tampa area. And uh, they have gone through kind of the Acts 29 assessment process and been approved. And they are, uh, Lord willing, here sometime in the next 
whenever the Lord dictates it, year or two, uh, are going to be planting uh, Liberty Tampa, Liberty Church in Tampa, uh, which is a, a really exciting thing. And you know if you are here at the King's Church that we have a massive heart for church planting. And so uh, John and I got to connect kind of uh, in God's providence, because uh, I think your lead pastor sent me an email, right? One of those things that I actually followed up on. And uh, it turned out to be a really great connection. And so I've gotten to know uh, John and Jess, and they have four boys who are hanging out next door uh, with our kingdom kids. And uh, just really excited for what the Lord is going to do uh, over in the Tampa area through uh, Liberty Tampa. So this morning, he has agreed to hop into the middle of our Isaiah series. So you should uh, thank John for that and uh, pray for him as he comes up here. But can we give a nice, warm welcome to uh, John Robinson this morning? Come on up, buddy. Good morning, King's Church. It's, uh, it's always a joy to open God's Word. Uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be back in the state of Florida. Um, despite what my license plate says, I'm actually from here. So um, it's good to be back in the Tampa Bay area uh, and to, uh, to be planting with Acts 29 and to be partnering with you, um, the King's Church here in Lakeland. Uh, just First, just, I, I just want to acknowledge the fact that that you um, and through your your lead pastor Ian have been extremely gracious to us uh, and kind to us when we are moving back into the area wanting to connect with other local Acts 29 pastors um, Ian has been just an incredible source of encouragement uh, and generosity and grace you truly do have an incredible uh, leadership team and especially with Ian uh, and the ways that he is uh, made himself available to us has been just the kindness of God. Um, it's always encouraging to kind of come into an area again and to be able to connect and be encouraged. Uh, as as we've never, I've never planted a church before. It's not like the thing that I do. Um, but in having been in ministry for a little while, uh, we're excited about what God is going to be doing in uh, and through Liberty Church. Liberty um, is spelled with an I at the end, not a Y. Um, which is a little odd. You're like, why would you do that? Well, good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, liberty with an I is the Latin term for freed people. Um, and uh, Liberty was actually founded in Philadelphia. Um, there's a, a network of churches that we're a part of. Our, our network director, Steve Huber, um, basically started uh, a Liberty Church there. There's a lot of freedom themes in Philadelphia. If you've ever been there, there's the Liberty Bell. Now one's spelled with a Y. Um, there's Independence Hall. There's so many things that would remind you of freedom, and I think that's really important for us uh, because he did and we do desire people to experience freedom, to truly experience what it is to be free, something that we believe that can only come from God himself. Uh, so we desire as a church to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for the Tampa Bay region, so that together we might share and enjoy the gospel. Uh, many of you have felt and experienced, though, a bondage that goes beyond physical chains. Uh, there's, a, there's a need for, if you will, emancipation uh, that goes beyond physical slavery, although we do believe that physical slavery is real and is happening in our day and needs to be dealt with and abolished. Um, but we believe that there is a spiritual slavery that occurs in humanity. Uh, that, that we 
having lived in Florida and, and from here, and, and you've probably felt and seen this, there's, this, there's a bondage to a more invisible type of slavery that comes with escapism and, and leisure and chasing after the shadows of things that will ultimately not bring us satisfaction and hope and joy and freedom, true freedom. But those of us who have seen, have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, we must go back to the captives to tell them about the freedom that we've received, namely this gospel of Jesus Christ, his freedom, his good news, which brings us to our passage today in Isaiah. As Christians, we are not calling people to do something else or add something else to our lives. We're calling people to a freedom in something that is other than, something that is, as the reformers would put it, is extra nos, which is something that maybe you would think like Dom from the Fast and the Furious would say. He would say something like, hey, we need some extra nos in this vehicle. And why? Why do we need that, Dom? Because we're family, he would say, which is his reason for everything that they do, because they're family. But extra nos in the, in the Latin really is meaning outside of ourselves. We must, we must have something outside of ourselves to save us from ourselves. We are not sufficient in and of ourselves to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. We can't do enough good to save ourselves. Even if we trace the morality of humanity, we will find that it leads to something outside of ourselves. Why we do good why we desire good. It comes from outside of ourselves, something that is extra nos, uh, which I, I just want to kind of underline our, our time together this morning with a, a kind of a main idea. That God is simultaneously wholly incomprehensible and knowable. Now those sound like paradoxes, but give me some time. Uh, and this truth about God is made manifest in Christ, our Holy Savior. So before we get any further, let's pray, and, uh, and we'll begin. Pray with me. Holy God, you are high above. You are holy, incomprehensible. You sit high, and you look low. God, if we were to look upon you in our fallen earthly state, we would be consumed by your glory. For eternity past to the eternity future, uh, your angels cover their eyes and their feet and they fly around the throne room saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. And so we who've come before you this morning, we plead with you. And we come this morning with boldness before the throne room of grace, with Christ's blood on our hands and on our heads. And we ask that you would give us, again, eyes to see and ears to hear. That we would receive from you, God, our Holy Father, grace upon grace. Father, give us a greater awareness of your spirit living in us and your purpose for this world. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. As a Baptist preacher, I have three points. Uh, I did not alliterate them, so I'm sorry I failed Ian, uh, I, didn't, I didn't alliterate this morning, uh, but the three points, if you're a note taker, uh, are, are this, uh, the holiness of God, 
holiness of God, the knowability of God, and third and finally, the saving power of God in Christ. So let's jump in. Uh, first, the holiness of God. We're going to look at Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8 for this first point. I'll read just verse 6 to kind of set us up, remind us again. It says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. There are two places in Scripture where we get a peek into the throne room of God. Revelation chapter 4, where John is given this revelation of Jesus Christ for the edification of the church, where Christ's ultimate victory is, is staged and what will be an encouragement for every generation after. We see a picture there of the new heavens and the new earth. And then also here in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, tells us of this throne room and this picture of, of cherubim, which are not little fat babies with uh, heart-pointed arrows. They're actually some very intense, fierce, heavenly creatures with six wings who fly around day and night with two wings covering their face, two wings covering their feet, and with two wings they're flying. And they're saying from eternity past to eternity future, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory, repeated over and over and over again. One of the, the attributes, therefore, of God that is essential for us to understand and to get a grasp of and to, to, to cling to is that of God's holiness, his otherness. That God's holiness is inexhaustible. There's, there's not a time where we can exhaust God's holiness. He, is, he doesn't run out of holiness. He doesn't need to step back and go, I need to recharge my holiness batteries. He is constantly, consistently the same holy God over and over and over again. God's holiness refers to the quality of God who is transcendently distinctive. It is unique. It is majestic. It is perfect. It is pure. Now, this is not an easy attribute to understand, but it is one that we need to recognize is a fundamental quality of God that makes God, God. There are facets about God that we may never see, that he is not revealed to us. There are aspects of God that the greatest theologians have yet to discover there are aspects that we have discovered and may not even know fully about. Like we try to wrestle with concepts and ideas about God and what is true and how he's revealed himself to us. Like trying to explain the Trinity. Trying to explain holiness fully. Trying to grasp the idea of eternity. Trying to understand grace. We've, we have concepts. We have ideas. We have the truth that backs these things up. But the, but the well is very, very deep. And so it is hard for us to fully understand. Any honest theologian knows that their, their, ex, their explanation of these things is, is limited. And still, we need to have a better understanding of God and His holiness. We need to have a better theology. We cannot assume that people know and believe that God is perfectly holy. This is becoming not just increasingly true outside of the church, but inside of the church as well. 
that we, are, we don't fully understand what the scriptures teach. Ligonier Ministries up in Sanford, Florida, uh, which was founded by R.C. Sproul, does every two years this, this national survey. It's called the State of Theology. It's actually thestateoftheology.com. You can go there and check out these stats. Um, but the 2020 survey findings were very revealing. 30% of evangelicals, people who would express themselves to be Bible-believing Christians, 30% of evangelicals reject the deity of Christ, that Jesus is divine. 47% believe that people are good by nature. 22% that gender identity is a matter of personal choice. The survey reveals that there's a real disconnect between what the Bible teaches and what people who identify themselves as Bible-believing Christians actually believe. And fundamental to all of these things, to all of these theological issues, is the issue of God's holiness. God's holiness has implications on every aspect of our theology and understanding of both who God is and the understanding of who we are in view of God. There are a number of great books on God's holiness. One of them I'll even recommend to you this morning is, is R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. If you don't have that, get that, read that. It's a, it's a great survey of God's holiness. But here in Isaiah 44, 6 through 8, we see that there, we see that there is a holiness of God that is unlike anything else that exists. That it is unique, that he is unique. That there's no one, no God like him. Is there a God beside me, he says in verse 8. There is no rock, no refuge, no strength. I know not any, he says. The word Lord here is the covenant name Yahweh. You see Lord in, uh, in all caps. It's, it's uh, Yahweh, the covenant name given to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, and then the text also reads there that Elohim, there's no Elohim like our God, like our Yahweh. Or the, and Elohim is the, the Hebrew word for God. So there's no, there's no God like Yahweh. He is in the beginning, Scripture teaches us. He has no end. There's no end to the Lord. He is eternal. Idols have always been worshipped in human history. Idols exist. We've, we've seen idolatry and idol worship from really the beginning of humanity. Uh, the thing is, the difference between God and idols is that idols also have an expiration date. We don't have um, churches to Ashtaroth or Baal, but we do have churches to the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord's worship, it, Lord will be worshipped forever and ever. But God's eternality, his His, his the scope of God's existence from before there was time until after there will be time. It's just another attribute of God that will help us understand who he is. When it comes to God's otherness, his holiness, we can look to a couple of, of terms that help us to, to understand who God is. One of those things is, is omniscience, God's omniscience, how he is all-knowing. We see pictures of God's omniscience, his all-knowingness, even in Christ, and how he could see and hear what people were thinking who were directly across from him. He could tell what the Pharisees were thinking in their minds. We also look to God's omnipresence, 
where God is not constrained to time and place, where he can be everywhere all at once. And we see that in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit can dwell in every believer all at once, at all time. And then we can look at God's omnipotence, how he is all-powerful. There is nothing that God cannot do. Psalm 135 tells us that the Lord does what he pleases. He is not constrained or restrained from doing as he pleases. The epitome of this is in the power of God in salvation. And yet, what happens, what we see here in our passage this morning, is that we settle for less. We settle for less than what God is. We create idols out of things. God contrasts himself with an idols, this idol worship. Most foolishly, I believe, we create idols out of ourselves, asserting ourselves into the places, the place that only God could occupy. Idolatry manifests itself in many ways. Some of the most modern forms of idolatry involve the worship of self, or even worse, the worship of an imaginary version of ourselves. Things that we hope we could be, things that we want people to believe that we are, and yet we're not. And so we believe that we know everything. And so we make decisions. We think that we're omniscient. We, th we make decisions based on how we're feeling that day and in that moment. Or what other people's opinions are. Or what we want other people's opinions to be about us. We make those kind of decisions. We think that we can be everywhere. And so we overwork. We overcommit ourselves. We say yes to things that are of a lesser good and squeeze out the opportunity for the greater good that God has truly designed us for. We overestimate our capacity for time. We also think that we are all powerful. That we overestimate our own abilities. We've bought into the lie that we can do whatever we set our minds to. No matter how much I want to be six foot eight, I can't be six foot eight. I've tried. I have believed that I am six foot eight, and here I am, barely touching six foot. On a good day with the wind in my back, with nice shoes on, I do okay. But we've been taught that we can believe, we can, we can manifest these realities, we can change the world, we can do whatever we set our minds to. We hear that, usually hear that a lot at graduations. Right? Uh, I, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. Every graduation was, you can go change the world. Go out there, do it, change the world. Really, I mean, it just needs to be get a job. That'd be really great. Uh, pay off your own student loans. Like, these are the things that we really need to teach kids and have them believe in. Like, you can get a job. And when we don't change the world, when we don't hit the expectation, we see ourselves as failures. Friends, this is modern-day idolatry. It will never satisfy. It will never meet your expectations. And as Barry Webb in his commentary on Isaiah says this, he says, idolatry is the worst sin of all because it moves God into the periphery of our lives and puts something else in his place. It gives to something else the glory that should be God's alone. Chameleon-like, it consistently disguises itself so that we are scarcely aware of its presence. Even when we are most in the grip of it, 
Greed, Paul tells us, is idolatry because it turns us away from God towards things and makes the pursuit of them the passion of our lives. The modern world is no less given over to idolatry than the ancient one. It is just that its cruder forms were more prevalent then. And friends, this is why the holiness of God matters. It matters so much. It is not as much an issue of information for us to, like, to think about it and go, I, I know that God is holy as much as it is an issue of faith. We have to believe that God is holy. We need to know that he is holy, 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 as the angels proclaim. He's perfectly holy. We also need to have faith that God's holiness is for us a great freedom. Look with me at verse 8. It says this, Fear not, nor be afraid. Fear not. There is no God beside me. There is no rock. I know not any. It brings us freedom to not fear. When we trust in God's holiness, not just that he is holy, but he is also present. You see, there's an aspect of God's holiness that is both terrifying and comforting. He is so other than, he is so holy, right, that if we were to go into the presence of God, we would be truly consumed by his holiness. People would not be able to even look upon God. Moses had to turn his head and look to the backside of God because his holiness would consume Moses and still God says here in our text, be not afraid. There's a welcome by our holy God to his people that shows an incredible grace and kindness to us. And so the holiness of God, this extra nos, this incomprehensibility is met with a tangible knowability. And so we move on to our second point this morning, the knowability of God. Flip that next chapter, Isaiah 45. The nobility of God. We're going to look at verses 18 and 19 here. Isaiah is pointing here in these verses that God has revealed what is true about himself. 18 and 19. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God. He formed me. He says this, 19. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. He's not given us clues. He's not, you know, putting these little crumbs of bread out there and hoping we can find him. No, he has spoken to us clearly about who he is, about what he does. And we cannot separate the truth of who God is from his activity. They are one and the same. He is what he does, and he does what he is. There is no good without the presence of God. There is no love or forgiveness without the presence of God. There is no redemption without the Redeemer. See, we can have pictures or ideas of, of what God is and what God does. But sometimes those things can be not true. They can be false pictures. We can make images or idols of God that are not based on what he has revealed about himself to be true, but what we want to be true about him. And we do that constantly, consistently. Any of you have ever seen the theatrical genius masterpiece, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby? 
you'll see how people have a picture of who God is or who Christ is based not on how he has revealed himself, but based on what they want him to be. If you haven't seen the movie, let me paint this beautiful picture for you. Uh, the, the family, Ricky Bobby and his, and his family, are sitting down for a, a meal, uh, and they begin to pray. And they pray to the idea of who they think Jesus is. Ricky Bobby says that he likes the Christmas version of Jesus, so he prays to six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus in his golden fleece diapers. And then his friend, Cal Naughton Jr., says, I like to think of Jesus with, like, giant eagle wings and singing lead vocals uh, for Leonard Skinner with an angel band. And I'm in the front row, and I'm hammered drunk. And, like, this is this picture that he's like, this is what Jesus is. And as humorous as this idea is, and, and, and as this movie has pictured it, it truly is a cultural diagnostic of how society has a picture of God in Christ that is not true. It is not what he has revealed himself to be. Tim Keller says this. He says, the majority of people who have a problem with Christianity have a problem with the caricature of what version, a caricature version of Christianity, not with the true message of the gospel. And so we need to understand that God has revealed himself. He has told us about who he is. It says this in 18 and 19, it says that he did not speak in secret. He was not trying to hide who he was so that only a select version uh, or group of people would be able to understand this. But God has spoken clearly through the scriptures. He has spoken clearly to his people to reveal himself. The revelation of God is complete and sufficient. Everything we need to know about God, we have in scripture. This is why 2 Peter 1, 3-4 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. And so we see that God has revealed himself in Scripture perfectly, completely. And we need to trust in the Scriptures because this is God's word to us, his very words to us that reveal to us about the character and nature of God. And in these verses, these two verses right here, um, Isaiah points out that there are two ways in which God has revealed himself. We, we categorize these um, as general revelation, which is that God spoke through creation. We see that in 18, right? And then in 19, we see that God spoke through the prophets or specific revelation or the scriptures. And God does this. God speaks through these means because he wants to be known. I don't know if you guys know that about God, but God wants you to know who he is. He's not trying to like, it's not a bait and switch. He's not trying to, to, to paint a picture of what he's like over here and then all of a sudden, boom, gotcha. Like, this is not what God is doing. He wants you to know who he is, what is truth, and what is right. He wants you to know this. 
about him. Because what is true and right about him is wonderful and glorious and good. And namely, he wants his creation to know that he has a glorious purpose to save and redeem his people. And that was his plan from the beginning. That he has and will continue to accomplish. Which brings us to our third and final point. The saving power of God in Christ. And in here we'll look at 45, Isaiah 45, 14 through 17 and 20 through 25. You see, God's plan from the beginning, before creation, God being all-knowing, was to bring about a Messiah, a Savior. See, it's in verse 15. Oh God, the Savior, even describes himself as the Savior of Israel. And the statement here in the first part of these verses, 14 through 17, would be a hard truth that the fact that the wealth and merchandise of Cush and the Sabians and the Egyptians, all of this, all of these people would come, these strong rulers, this mighty army would come because the the situation that Israel is in right now is is a situation of, of captivity. So this statement would be a hard truth to accept Because not only would they be captive to the Assyrians, and then they would become captive to the Babylonians. There would be be a a, a brutal destruction uh, that would occur to the people of Israel. They would break all that Israel would know to be true. There would be a loss culturally. They would lose a cultural identity. They would lose their own agency. They would lose a majority of the people of Israel through these captivities. And so, this dwindling, helpless, nearly lifeless, disenfranchised people would hear these words from Isaiah. And it would be hard to believe. It would be hard to believe that God would save them. There's difficulty when we hear of God's goodness in the midst of difficulties. They're not. It's hard for us to believe that God is good sometimes. When everything feels like it's, it's, just, it's just going away. When you, lose, when you lose things that you thought you would never lose. When, when things are taken away from you that you uh, held dear. It's hard to believe that God is good. And so Israel, in the midst of hearing this, it was, this is a hard truth for them to grasp. That these mighty armies, these, these, uh, these people, these strong people would actually come and bow down. They would see God for who he is. These are the ones who are bringing about destruction and pain and agony and sorrow. But God, being rich in mercy, would continue to be faithful despite their circumstances. God was going to continue to be faithful despite their circumstances. God was going to continue to bring about his promises to be true. That he was going to bring a savior. That he was going to bring hope to them. That he would preserve for himself a people. Even beyond a people, a lineage to fulfill his promise of a Messiah that would come through the line of David to rule and reign, not from an earthly throne, but from a heavenly throne. The Messiah 
the promised one of Israel, was at this moment unknown to the people of Israel. Yet here in these verses, as we heard them read, the very Lord, their Savior, would speak to them. Look with me in verse 23. It says this, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Jump down to 25. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Believe that this is a word from the second member of the Trinity, Christ himself. He promises that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess and that they shall be justified and glorified. And we hear these statements repeated more poignantly, poignantly in the New Testament, in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, where it says, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in Romans 8, it says this, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And this is, this is where we hear the echo. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he has justified. And those he has justified, he will glorify. And so, in this unimaginable situation, this desperate situation, it is veiled with this glimmer of hope, this picture of hope that the Messiah himself would come to be their Savior, to save and restore them. He would come. Christ would take on flesh, becoming his creation, becoming incarnate, born not into majesty or privilege, but into humility and near obscurity. Who could save us from the wrath of of God, only God himself, the Holy One of Israel, could become its salvation and would become our salvation. And so, as verse 22 says, we must look to him. We must look to him. He invites all of us, and in fact, all of the world, to look to him. All who are spiritually weary and seek rest, look to Him. All who mourn and long for comfort, look to Him. All who struggle and desire victory, look to Him. To all who sin and need a Savior, look to Him. To all who are strangers and desire fellowship, look to Him. To all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, look to Him. And whoever will come, look to Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said this of this verse, God will have you turn your eye off yourself and look to him. The hardest thing in the world is to turn a man's eye off of himself. As long as he lives, he always has a predilection to turn his eyes inside and look at himself. Whereas God says, look unto me. And this is the message that we have and we have been given. This holy, incomprehensible, inexhaustible 
God has become human flesh and dwelt among us, making himself known, not hiding himself, but revealing himself, making himself accessible and calling all men to himself, giving his people his Holy Spirit, sending his people out to set captives free. Christ's invitation is to the world. It says this in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And the way he sends out this invitation to the ends of the earth is through your lips, the lips of God's people. You who have been a recipient of someone speaking the truth and saying, turn to Christ, look to Christ. And so we are, we are motivated by this, by this message of the gospel, this freedom that we are given for captives. And we must go back to fellow captives with the message of hope and freedom, saying to them, look to Christ and be saved. For there is no other God like our God, and no one can save like Christ. And so this is our message. This is our hope. And this is God's desire for the world, is to look to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are longing to draw near. May your spirit draw us near. We come by the way of Christ, our mediator. We could not approach you, O oh God, if it were not for him. But in him we come boldly to the throne of heavenly grace. Nor can we come without thanksgiving. Thanksgiving from the heart, such as the tongue can never express. You have chosen us from before the foundation of the world. And this is a wellhead of mercy. And it sends forth streams of loving kindness that is never ceasing. Because we are chosen by you, we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Thanks be to God. And we have been called by the Holy Spirit out of the world. And we have been led to obey the wondrous call, which has quickened us and renewed us and made us the people of God, given us adoption into the divine family. So bless us, Lord. In Christ we pray. Amen.